What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Welcome to As a Woman, Fertility Hormones and Beyond. I'm your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford, and I am a board-certified OBGYN and fertility physician and also co-founder of Fora Fertility in Austin, Texas. Each week on this podcast, I discuss health and fertility and how they relate to your true self. Become a part of the community of collaboration that amplifies others as a woman. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome back to the As A Woman podcast. I am your host, Dr. Natalie Crawford. I'm a board-certified OBGYN and REI, co-founder of Fora Fertility and host of the As A Woman podcast. Today is one of my favorite type of episodes. You are listening to Fertility Q&A. This is where you call and leave your voicemails. I answer your questions. I love it because it is a potpourri of everything. I never know what you're going to ask, but I respect so much the fact that these are questions that you are searching for the answer to and the fact that you trust me is just really, really quite meaningful to me. So before we dive into your voicemails, I just want to go over a few housekeeping items. First of which is that in regular episodes, we do a Q&A at the end of each episode. This Q&A pulls from Instagram questions on Monday. So this is our For Fertility Sake weekly Q&A. You can ask your questions Monday on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and some of those questions will be answered on Instagram. Some of them will be answered here on the podcast, and some of them will be answered in the newsletter. So you can sign up for the newsletter, nataliecrawfordmd.com newsletter. That is also where you will find fertility in the news, my hot takes on interesting fertility in the news. And you'll find my favorite recipes, products, and overall updates on things that I am up to or things that you may be interested in. So again, nataliecrawfordmd.com slash newsletter. Now, if you want to leave one of your questions on the voicemail for me to answer, you are going to call 657-229-3672. Again, that is 657-229-3672 and leave your voicemail. So without further ado, let's dive in. My question is, I had an ectopic in May, which required methotrexate at the end of May. And according to my cycle, I will be ovulating around August 10th-ish next month. Is it okay to try at that point? Um, I know it's technically two weeks before the like three-month wait is over to try. But what risks are we looking at if I do try two weeks early? All right, this is a really good question about management of ectopics and a common treatment, which is methotrexate. So first of all, I'm so sorry you had an ectopic. I've had that. It's really not fun. Methotrexate also is not the world's most fun drug. In addition to just overall not feeling great when you get it, it is the time out of trying to get pregnant that really feels like insult to injury, or at least it did to me. So what methotrexate is, it is a folic acid antagonist, meaning that it prevents cells from utilizing folic acid, which is essential in cell division. So if you have a group of rapidly dividing cells, such as a pregnancy, they do rapidly divide. Let's just think about even early pregnancy. 
because of IVF, we know this data really well. So you have sperm and egg come together and that day number one, it's a one cell embryo that then divides. By day three, it tends to be around eight cells. It's exponentially dividing one to two to four to eight. Then what you're going to see by day five is it's going to be closer to 300 cells or more. So this embryo is rapidly dividing. That's what's happening in early gestation, much quicker than the other cells of your body. Methotrexate is a chemotherapy. So what else divides really quickly? Cancer. So by targeting folic acid and blocking its utilization by cells, methotrexate prevents things that are rapidly dividing from continuing that growth trajectory. When we use methotrexate with an ectopic pregnancy, our hope is that it stops growing and then you eventually can recover without having to have tubal surgery or have your fallopian tube removed. Again, though, it's extremely essential, right? We all know that folic acid is essential for early embryo development. It's really important in all those early cells. It's essential for just getting from point A to point B. And something a lot of us know because it's talked about very often is neural tube defects. That rapid division and closure of the neural tube, which is your brain and your spinal cord, is dependent on having enough folic acid to keep those cells dividing to fully cover that neural tube. So because methotrexate is an intramuscular injection that lives in your body for a while, our fear is that if you conceive soon thereafter, even if you are taking all the folic acid in the world, your body's blocking it because of the methotrexate. And the real risk here is miscarriage or birth defect. We're really most concerned about birth defect, but it could be both. And this is why people are going to tell you, use some type of contraception or abstain or do not try to get pregnant for the 90 days after you have received methotrexate. And in fact, when you're training, when you're in residency and you see potentially a different patient population, if somebody is going to be non-compliant with that recommendation, that is a reason to not give them methotrexate. But the base of your question here is this, the moment your period starts or the cycle you start trying to get pregnant in, you're not pregnant for two weeks. You're not pregnant really for two weeks in five to six days, because the moment an embryo can start to implant is really around that two week, five day mark. So before that, it's not even implanting or having a connection to your circulation. There's no ovulation even before that two week period. And so even when I have patients, let's use an example, who are doing an embryo transfer, I will let them start some of the process, but we definitely are putting the transfer day after that mark. And so if you are asking, oh, my period starts on this day, but I have two weeks left in my 90 days, is that okay? For the most part, I would say that seems to be relatively safe because by the time you've even ovulated, your 90 days are up. And then the last couple things to remember, one is going to be that you need to be taking prenatal with folic acid in it. So we might ask you not to take that immediately upon getting your methotrexate, but as you're getting closer to the end of it, definitely make sure you're taking a prenatal with at least 300 micrograms of folic acid. Also, you're going to want to remember that if you had to get multi-dose methotrexate, the 90 days is from the last dose you received, not the first dose. And side note, people use methotrexate for other reasons. It can be used as a chemotherapeutic agent in higher doses, but it's also used for certain autoimmune diseases and can help people in that circumstance. 
So the same rules would apply if you use methotrexate for your rheumatoid arthritis. I would want you to wait three months after you stop it before you start trying to get pregnant. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Quince. The weather's getting warmer, so it's time to say goodbye to jackets and sweaters and hello to shorts and tees. I wanted to update my wardrobe for the long haul without spending a fortune. And luckily I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. The best part is that Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands, but Quince partners directly with top factories, cutting out the cost of the middleman, passing the saving to us, and only working with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices. I personally cannot wait to wear my cute tan linen set this summer. So it's your turn to get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash A-A-W for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash A-A-W to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash A-A-W. Thank you, Quince. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Apostrophe. With the temperatures starting to warm up, I'm so excited the summer is around the corner and getting ready and looking forward to the summer months. But I know that when I'm outside enjoying nature, I need to pick up supplies to prepare myself for summer adventures. And if you want to get your skin glowing in time for summer, it's time for you to get started with Apostrophe, who is sponsoring this episode. Apostrophe's goal is to help you feel confident in your own skin. So whether you're dealing with breakouts, signs of aging, or acne scarring, Apostrophe will help you love the skin you're in. I personally love that you get access to an expert dermatology team, a tailored treatment plan. It's simple to sign up for your first visit, and there is no in-person appointment or trip to the pharmacy needed. We have a special deal for our audience. Get your first visit for only $5 at apostrophe.com slash A-A-W when you use our code A-A-W. That's a savings of $15. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash A-A-W and click get started. Then use the code A-A-W at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. Thank you, Apostrophe, for sponsoring this episode. Hi, Natalie. My name is Brianna. I've been struggling with infertility for a year. I've had one miscarriage in July of last year. I'm currently been going on with lots of different um, vaginal issues the last few cycles. I've had a UTI. I've had bacterial vaginosis. I just got a yeast infection this cycle. I've also been tested for urea plasma, and I came out positive. And um, we did the first round of doxycycline, but are also positive again after that first two weeks of doxycycline. I guess I'm just wondering, what are your thoughts on all of this, if that is the underlying cause of some of these issues? Seems like every time my period comes around, I'm constantly having irritation, itching, burning. It just doesn't seem to get any better each cycle. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are for what I can do for this. Thank you. All right. So first of all, I want to say I'm so sorry you're suffering through all of this. Sometimes when you get into this spectrum of vaginal irritation and yeast infection and everything, it just seems like you're going down a tunnel that never ends. First of all, we definitely can see changes in vaginal sensitivity to different times of the cycle, to different medications, to different treatments. So some of that may be related to what you're going through or the time of the cycle. For example, when your estrogen is low, you tend to feel or have a yeast infection more or feel more vaginal irritation. That tends to not be the case when your estrogen is higher. So some of this may be just 
timing, increased irritation, lubrication you're using while you're trying to get pregnant. That's often something I always ask patients because it can cause some vaginal irritation and lead to some of these problems. So sometimes I say, look at everything that's going on. If you're doing fertility treatment, it's a little different, but let's just say you're trying naturally, maybe give yourself a month break, see if your vaginal flora can reset. When you do try again, pay mindful attention to if you're using any type of lubricant or other things that can cause irritation or reaction. When it comes to urea plasma, let's admit there is an area here that we don't have great research on, but we're starting to get some, meaning that urea plasma tends to be at an increased prevalence in people who have unexplained infertility. First-line treatment is typically doxycycline, which a lot of people get in different phases of different protocols without going through checking it, what you may be going through. But if doxycycline or azithromycin is not successful in eradicating it and you are checking it, then typically you want to go on to some different type of antibiotic. This might be a fluoroquinolone or something else. The other thing is that studies have shown that oral probiotics with lactobacillus has been effective at containing urea plasma, so making it not grow as much. So if you're not taking probiotics and you've had yeast infection, you have urea plasma, that's definitely something that I would consider. And oral probiotics are fine. You don't need to go down a pathway of putting extra things in your vagina. Sometimes we do that and we get into the hamster wheel of just irritation. So maybe vaginal rest, pay attention to lube, give yourself a hormone break if you're on hormones, another antibiotic, but with probiotics would be my consideration. And then again, I don't know where you are in this process, but people who have urea plasma in the cervix, which is probably where your OBGYN is swabbing it, like when they swab for gonorrhea chlamydia, have a higher incidence of having tubal infertility or tubal blockage. So if you're positive for this, I would consider getting an HSG or an x-ray dye test earlier in the process than maybe you normally would, just to make sure everything's fine from that end if you don't get pregnant soon. Hi, Dr. Crawford. My name is Haley, and I'm a women's health nurse practitioner in Greenville, South Carolina. But I'm on my own secondary infertility journey and had a question. Um, I recently read that having a chlamydia antibody titer coupled with a high-sensitivity C-reactive protein had a pretty comparable both positive and negative predictive value for tubal factor infertility as compared to the HSG procedure. Any thoughts on this? Um, I can find a few papers with some good data, but wondered if you ever utilize this in practice. And I guess a secondary question would be, in someone with a history of chlamydia that is trying to get pregnant, how long would you wait before recommending they have an HSG performed? Thanks so much. This is a good question and something that's been brought up over and over in the infertility world because we would love to diagnose tubal factor earlier and easier. We would love to not have to put patients through a tubal evaluation or an HSG, which is a procedure, right? Checking urine or blood is much simpler than having to undergo a procedure. That being said, studies have shown conflicting things, and the take-home message is that chlamydia serology for antibodies is not enough based on the recent meta-analysis. So if you've had a chlamydia infection sometime in the past, just like all infections, your body's going to make some antibodies to fight it off. Those antibodies stay in your system, waiting in case you get chlamydia again, 
it knows what to do. Now, there was a recent meta-analysis which was published this year looking at all these prior studies, and it did show that people who had higher levels of antibody titer had a higher incidence of having more severe tubal disease, which makes sense, right? The more your body had to create to fight it off, or because it saw chlamydia multiple times, now it has more tubal damage. But really, the positive predictive value is low of the test alone. And that's because a lot of people get chlamydia and they recover fine. And a lot of other things can cause tubal disease besides just chlamydia. Chlamydia antibodies probably have a role in helping triage patients to get testing sooner. In my mind, if you had a positive chlamydia antibody, should I really make you try to get pregnant for a whole year before I go look to see if your tubes are abnormal? So I can imagine, and what studies have suggested, is that that potentially is an earlier screening modality that if you're positive, might get you on a pathway to get screened more formally in a faster fashion than having to wait a set amount of time to get diagnosed with infertility. Now, the other thing is that people are not preventing you from having a fertility evaluation. So yes, the recommendation is that if you have tried to get pregnant for a year and you're under age 35 or six months and you're between 35 and 40 or zero to three months if you're 40 and older, you should have a fertility evaluation. That is because we want to detect problems. Now, this doesn't mean that you absolutely have to wait that long. So if you had chlamydia in the past or you have known endometriosis and you want to get your tubes checked before you start trying to get pregnant, I think that's fine and smart. And ask your OBGYN or schedule an appointment with a fertility doctor. Nobody's preventing you from doing fertility testing. Some insurances may not cover it until you've been meeting the definition of infertility. A lot of insurances don't cover fertility testing at all. Many of them are getting away from some of those requirements now. But the short answer is you have to be the advocate for yourself. And to answer your question, I don't utilize chlamydia antibody at this moment. I could see a place where maybe it's going to be helpful in triaging patients, but I want to know what's happening with the tubes in a more direct fashion. So it's always HSG or FemView for me, depending on patient history. Hi, uh, my question is, what are some treatments or supplements for PCOS that may need more research but look promising based on the research that currently exists? Thank you. This is a really good question. We have to remember that PCOS is a multifaceted disease. So I think it's hard to answer in one sentence, treatment for PCOS. I don't think about PCOS as in there's a treatment for it. It depends on what phase or spectrum of the disease or what symptom you're trying to treat at that time. So if we think about PCOS, it is an ovulation, an ovarian function issue where the communication between the brain and ovary is not responding normally. You have a lot of follicles. The signal from the brain is essentially normal, not strong enough to get a follicle to grow in that reliable, predictable time. So the ovary gets bored because the ovary loves to make estrogen. It's a hormone-making factory. And when it can't make estrogen, it then shifts and it starts to make testosterone. And that pathway has really positive feedback. So then you get some of the symptoms from this testosterone, which can be central weight gain and acne and hair growth and hair loss, depending on where on your body. And then you're going to get some of the metabolic changes that are associated with this as well, such as insulin resistance and high cholesterol and high blood pressure. 
and it really all feeds back on itself. So we have multiple problems. We have some metabolic issues with insulin resistance and cholesterol and blood pressure. We have a testosterone that is higher than it should be, and we're not ovulating. We have a hormonal issue in the ovary. People will say your progesterone low or your E to P, your estrogen to progesterone ratio is too high, or my least favorite, that you're estrogen dominant. But that really just means you're not ovulating because in the follicular phase, which is the time period from when you have a period to when you start ovulating, you make only estrogen and you only make progesterone once you ovulate. So if you don't ovulate, you don't have progesterone. And I see providers giving patients daily progesterone because their E to P ratio is off. And yet these people are trying to get pregnant and essentially they just gave them birth control. So we do really have to understand the ovary and how it works to get there. Now, in my perfect world, there would be a safe medication for people with PCOS to use to ovulate without needing monitoring or really a concern for high order multiples. Low-dose letrozole is probably getting close to this in a lot of patients, but the hard thing is not everybody's going to respond to it. Not everybody responds to the same dose. And some people still have multiples. I've had letrozole triplets in my practice before, even from low dose treatment. But if I could get somebody to ovulate, it would help a lot of these problems. And now a word from one of our sponsors, Ritual. Did you know that women were excluded from clinical research policy by federal law until 1993? But women belong in scientific research. They're essential and Ritual knows this. I choose Ritual Multivitamin every day because it is easy to take and I know that I am getting high quality and traceable ingredients in a clean and bioavailable forms. In fact, Ritual conducted a university-led human clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy and the results showed increase in vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. No line shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin that you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash A-A-W. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash A-A-W for 25% off. Thank you, Ritual. So one is more research on non-monitored letrozole use based on what parameters you could give it and see if that could help patients ovulate. Two is myo-inositol is one of my favorite things. So inositol can be really helpful for patients with PCOS. Emerging Research Pro would love to see more. It is more tolerated than metformin. Metformin is another thing that can help with insulin resistance, but I find that patients can tolerate metformin much poorer than they tolerate inositol. And I usually only put patients on metformin with documented blood values consistent with insulin resistance, but I recommend any PCOS patients to use inositol. We also know that PCOS patients benefit from extra vitamin D, so that's something I recommend for my PCOS patients. But we do see other things that can be really helpful for some of the symptoms. It just depends on where you are and what you're trying to do. So the combination of spironolactone and oral contraceptive pills together can be fantastic for acne and can be helpful for preventing future increase in hair growth. And if you're not trying to get pregnant, that can be helpful. 
If you're overweight, losing weight, because those fat cells make estrogen and decreasing that estrogen releases some of that suppression on the brain. The brain can send out more FSH and then you can ovulate. And if you can ovulate, you can reverse some of the PCOS changes over time. So if you are overweight, losing weight, which is always easier said than done, but we have seen patients recently with Ozempic and medications like that really have a fast turnaround and start either naturally ovulating or responding to ovulation induction medication better. When it comes to people who have PCOS who are not wanting to get pregnant and you do not ovulate, you are in a small pickle. And the reason why is that unopposed estrogen does put you at risk for endometrial cancer, which is totally preventable. Those endometrial cells do not need to be just constantly sitting there. And your doctors are always thinking about the worst case scenario. And so that's why they want to come in and give you birth control pills or give you progesterone to take daily or to take once a month or once every two months or once every three months. If you sometimes ovulate with PCOS and you don't want to prevent pregnancy, but you're not really trying, I will often give somebody a 10-day course of progesterone to take every two months if they don't have a period, but to take a pregnancy test first in case they're pregnant. And I don't like daily progesterone in this group because it's less well tolerated alone and it can just really thin out the lining over time. I do find that birth control pills can be better tolerated, but everybody's different. But really, if you're wanting to normalize your cycle back and to try to ovulate, you have to understand that for some people, it's not possible. For some people, you can change things. So this is where a real honest evaluation of your life comes into play. So understanding your cycles, making sure there's not other associated things that need treatment like thyroid and prolactin, making sure that if you have insulin resistance that qualifies as diabetes, you get that treated, getting sleep. Sleep is when your body heals, trying to manage stress, trying to lose weight. If you're overweight, that can be helpful trying to manage some of the metabolic changes. So we have patients who can be very thin who have PCOS and we have patients who are overweight. So it does not discriminate, but I love lifestyle focus and y'all know that. But sometimes I see that there is this trend to fix your cycles, normalize your PCOS, cure your PCOS with my book course plan supplement. And that's just not realistic for everybody. And I hate setting those expectations. I do think you can improve it. And those changes do add up, even if you do need fertility treatments, that's not a weakness, but you can have better response to even lesser aggressive treatments. And to me, I think that is a win. So ultimately, to answer the question, which I think was, what is their emerging treatment? Inositol is probably the thing that I see PCOS patients underutilizing that could probably be beneficial. And I'd love to see more research done on unmonitored letrozole to try to help more patients just normalize ovulation with low risk. Hi, I wanted to know if it was possible to have a long cycle, about 34 days on average, but ovulate super early around cycle day 11. I use OPKs to track my ovulation, and for the past two cycles, when I started actually monitoring my OPKs for the past two cycles, it shows me a peak around day 11, but I don't start my periods until almost 22 days later. So I feel like that's just a really long period between when I ovulate and my next period. So is there something wrong? Is my ovulation showing me a false positive? Just wanted to get more clarification on that. Thank you. 
So in this scenario, I am concerned that the OPKs aren't really giving us a true positive, and the top cause of that can be PCOS. So as I just described PCOS before, when your body is not ovulating, when you don't have estrogen starting to be made from that dominant follicle by day seven to 10, your body's going to start to shift to make extra testosterone. And this is coming from increased LH pulses to stimulate testosterone production. And so we see patients with PCOS get false positive OPKs quite commonly, especially in the early follicular period. And it can be very frustrating. Now it depends on the person But we used to think of the LH to FSH ratio as one of the diagnostic criteria, meaning if you had a high LH compared to your FSH, then that was a sign of PCOS. And I still see this and it can be quite high. So I would ask if you have really long cycles, do you have any of the other PCOS symptoms? Could there be underlying PCOS? If I was betting money, I bet this is PCOS that you're doing a really good job trying to control because you are ovulating. 34-ish days. It's not like you're going 50, 90 days or something really, really long. So you're doing what you can and you're trying to track your cycle. So what I want to see is, are you really getting the signs of progesterone a few days after that? So your OPK should be positive about the day before you ovulate. So 24-ish hours before you ovulate. And then about three days after that, you should see progesterone start to rise. So maybe I would consider doing some BBT tracking. This can be really simple. It can be on your Apple watch. It can be with a specific type of thermometer. It can be with another type of wearable, but see if your progesterone really rises because I suspect that it is not. Another thing would be, are you getting cervical mucus changes around the time of that positive OPK? Do you have that type four sticky cervical mucus? So if you put your fingers inside and you pull out Are you seeing that type 4 cervical mucus or not? If you're not seeing that till closer to day 20 or so, then again, I don't think this is a real positive. And this is because the luteal phase is pretty set in almost everybody. It can vary a little bit, but it's not going to be 22 days long. So the luteal phase is typically 14 days. I would say variation would be 12 to 15, but not getting close to 20 plus. If you really can't tell, you're not getting a temp change ever, you're not able to detect cervical mucus, we just don't know, then it can be hard because this is a perfect example of how if you're trying to get pregnant on that, it's totally off from where you're expected to be ovulating based on the calendar method. The calendar method here would say 34 minus 14, you're going to ovulate on day 20, not day 11. So you're targeting totally different timeframes. So you can either just have lots of sex the whole time and that would cover it, or you want to know if you're ovulating and in what window. And combining with an ultrasound is going to be an easy way if you're clued in with a fertility doctor and OBGYN. So if you can't tell with BBT or cervical mucus, which would be the easier at home options, then asking if you can get an ultrasound when you get a positive or around that time frame in the next cycle. Hey, my OPKs are just not really making sense. Can I come in around cycle day 10 for an ultrasound to try to see what's going on? And I anticipate you don't see a dominant follicle and it's more consistent with PCOS and you're getting a high LH reading because of the PCOS, not because you're ovulating, but you don't know unless you ask. And so that would be what I would research. Other things besides PCOS, which can cause long cycles can be Thyroid and prolactin are going to be the two most common abnormalities. 
Those can both be treated, can be tested with a blood test. They shouldn't be causing a high or false positive LH. And then the other thing I see causing false positive LH tests or positive LH, let's not say false positive, but it's not an ovulation test, is when you start to have a very low egg count and your natural FSH and LH are getting higher because your egg count is low and they're working so hard to try to stimulate more. That can cause some irregularity in cycles. An AMH blood test would show this. I wouldn't think it would be so consistent every day of the cycle always, especially with this described period pattern, but just in general, things that can cause some abnormal cycles and can cause some abnormal testing. So I would get evaluated or at least start by tracking. If you can track with PBT and cervical mucus and detect that you're ovulating closer to day 20, I would say, "Mm, this is probably LH from PCOS. And if you have other PCOS symptoms like acne, hair growth, central weight gain, you probably meet it. If you're not sure, go find a doctor who can help you out because I would want to get to the bottom of this. Hi, Natalie. Thank you so much for putting out all the information that you do and for your podcast. I do have a quick question for you. I just got my calendar for my frozen embryo transfer and my expected transfer date is the day before flying out to leave on vacation. So I just want to make sure, is it okay to fly? Is it okay to fly same day? I've been looking at flying out that day and just want to hear your thoughts on travel and movement and all that after transfer. Thanks. All right. So the ultimate bottom line answer is your doctor knows your protocol and they may give you something different based on your history or something personal to you. To me, it depends on where you're going is the short answer. Yes, you're pregnant until proven otherwise, but very few complications can happen in this time period before you have a test that's positive. So I will allow patients to travel as long as they're back by the time that they're getting you know, their pregnancy test results and as long as they're going somewhere where we can reach them. My preference is that you do not travel after a transfer until after the six-week ultrasound where we see a pregnancy with a heartbeat that's normal and in the uterus, not an ectopic, not a miscarriage, not something that needs intervention. You'll never have a doctor that feels comfortable with you being outside their care or somewhere where they can't control what happens to you when you're pregnant. And in IVF, we take this really seriously. So depending on where you're going and for how long would be the bottom line. So I have patients who travel. There's not as many risks as say after the egg retrieval where we want to make sure you're not bleeding and you've recovered from anesthesia okay. And in this early phase, you might not even be pregnant and there's not a pregnancy. Typically, some travel is going to be fine. But I would have an honest conversation about your team, where you're going, how long you're going to be there, what the game plan is. And that might help answer your question a little bit. My preference would be, hey, let's just do the transfer when you get back. That's just going to make everybody happier. So that would be my preference, especially if you're doing a frozen embryo transfer and we can change things based on your cycle if it's a controlled cycle. It sounds like it's a controlled cycle, which is a medicated cycle where you're growing the lining with estrogen and then you'll initiate progesterone and have the transfer set. The other thing to be aware of is that that transfer is not really set until the monitoring appointment. So there is a chance that you come in and things could get pushed. So if you're going out of town for 10 days, that trip definitely could be at risk if your lining doesn't look good at that monitoring appointment. 
So because of those uncertainties, that last minute change causes stress and anxiety, of course, I would prefer you do the transfer afterward. Also, if it's a modified natural cycle, which it doesn't sound like it is, but just for people who are listening, in a modified natural cycle, we are getting your ovaries to grow because they're ovulating. And sometimes we're overstimulating you a little bit on purpose because we're trying to get that lining thicker, but that could put you at risk for ovarian torsion, depending on what is going on. So again, where are you going? What are you doing on this trip? Are you just lying somewhere? Are you hardcore working out? Are you going to run a marathon? A lot of it might depend on the scenario. So I like to control things. I don't like last minute changes because not every transfer happens on that day. One of the beauties of a frozen transfer is we can shift based on what is happening in your body. And if your lining needs more time, we can push it. So I would favor moving things around, but ultimately ask your doctor what they think. All right, everybody. Well, that is it for our Q&A episode this week. I loved these questions and I can't wait to do even more of them. So call and leave your voicemail. It is 657-229-3672. Again, 657-229-3672. Remember that your questions can be anonymous or leave your name. It doesn't matter to me. This is a great way to get your questions answered and help everybody learn a little bit more. On our regular episodes, we answer questions and for fertility's sake, our end of the podcast Q&A. You can ask those questions every week on Instagram on Monday at Natalie Crawford MD. Remember, they will be answered on Instagram on Monday on the podcast for fertility's sake segment and in the newsletter. You can sign up for the newsletter at nataliecrawfordmd.com newsletter to get those questions, understand fertility in the news, see some recipes, and overall just keep up with everything that's going on. All right, again, 657-229-3672. Can't wait to answer more of your voicemails. Thanks, friends. Thank you all for listening to As a Woman. It would mean so much if you could rate, review, and follow the podcast to be notified of new episodes every Sunday. I hope you learned something new, and I hope you share it with someone in your life. Be sure to follow along on Instagram at Natalie Crawford MD, and check out the YouTube channel Natalie Crawford MD. If you're interested in becoming a patient, you can also follow Fora Fertility. I'm so thrilled to have you here, part of the community that amplifies others as a woman. Hey guys, welcome to The Collective. I'm Brianne Halfrich, a 26-year-old bioethics PhD student and clothing brand CEO. Welcome to my podcast where we talk all things health and wellness, navigating your 20s, and becoming the best version of yourself. So sit down, play that episode, and join The Collective.